I'm Will Primos, and you're listening to the Fochi Creek Podcast. This is Cody Robbins from Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey, and you're listening to Joby and Shed with the Fochi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on Fochi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on the Fochi Creek Podcast. It's not as good to speak the language, but it's close. (laughs) (laughs) This has been Rising with Whitetail Edge. You're listening to Foshi Creek Podcast with Shed and Joby. This is Austin Delano with Mossy Oak Biologic and Gamekeepers, and you're listening to Joby and Shed Whitaker on Foshi Creek Podcast. You're listening to the Foshi Creek Podcast. I'm Joby Holland. With me is Mr. Shed Whitaker. In today's episode, we have Mr. Ernie Calandrelli, known for his extensive career with Quaker Boy Game Calls. Ernie is also a member of the New York State Outdoorsman Hall of Fame, and was named the New York Outdoor News Person of the Year. There is no one any more connected or well-known in the hunting industry as Ernie. He has a wealth of knowledge, is a heck of a storyteller, and has over 40 years of being involved with the hunting industry. Enjoy. Well, yeah. Ernie, we appreciate you taking time to be with us uh, this evening. Uh, no, friend, no, this is, this is not live, or it is live? It's live to the three of us, but now we're, we'll record it. I'll edit it all down, and then we'll put it out sometime okay. this week. Just tell us a little bit, Ernie, if you, if you don't mind, you've been with, which I, I was reading today, where you're in the New York State Outdoorsman Hall of Fame, also uh, New York Outdoor News Person of the Year. You've been, you were a Quaker boy for over 30-something years, I believe. So tell us a little bit about who you are and how, how you got started on this journey of life that you're on. I also won, uh, seeing we're talking about that, what the heck, right? I won the uh, the biggest award the one year for the uh, Aglow, the Outdoor Great Lakes Outdoor Writers Association. I won their top award one year, and then I, here at Niagara County Federation of Sportsmen's Clubs, I won their Lifetime Achievement Award, too. But, I mean, it's kind of cheating because, I mean, I was doing it for a living. (laughs) (laughs) I did go up and above and beyond as far as, like, I did a a lot of stuff with youth, and I still do. I do youth hunts. I run a kids fishing tournament. I, anytime that uh, disabled or veterans or youth, uh, I got a soft spot for all of that. And, uh, and I try to give it, get involved the best I can or as much as I can with it. But it all started with me when I was a kid. I mean, I remember three, four years old, my father dragging me in a wood, in a wood squirrel hunting. You know, I wasn't carrying a gun or anything, but he had me with him. And I guess it kind of built a fire under me. And way back when, uh, I mean, nothing kept me from it. Once I was able to start hunting and start hunting on my own, nothing kept me from it. I mean, even uh, I played high school football, and as soon as pheasant season started, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to hunt. I don't want to play no darn football. (laughs) But anyway, I mean, that's the way my whole life ran, hunting and fishing and and that's, that's what I did, and that's what I do to this day. And it, it was a great life. I mean, there isn't a real lot of people uh, throughout this country or any country that that made a living off of hunting and fishing. I, you know, I was a welder for 14 years, and then I had a buddy of mine tell me about I mean, I'd killed a couple of turkeys in the fall, but never really got crazy about it. And, and uh, finally, we were playing hockey. And because uh, I did play hockey, and he told me in the locker room one night after a game, he says, 
He said, let's go turkey hunting in the morning. He said, because I got a tag every year, but I just never went. I said, all right, I'll go. He knew what he was doing. He, he actually grew up in Pennsylvania. And uh, so I went with him, and he said, I said, where are we going to go? He said, well, you got any turkeys at your cabin? I said, I've seen one or two there. That's it. Never. And God, there isn't, there can't be many there. So we went, we pulled in a driveway of my camp and we got out. And as soon as we got out of the vehicle, there was three turkeys gobbling up on the ridge behind the camp. And it, you know, and, and, and everybody knows as soon as you hear the first wild turkey gobble, if you're any kind of a, a hunter outdoorsman, you're done. <laughs> that, I didn't even have to see them turkeys just hearing them <laughs> gobbling a tree like that. Just it wrecked it. I don't want to say it wrecked my life. It definitely enhanced my life. Now, how old would you have been then, Ernie? I was older then. I was, uh, well, that was 40-some years ago. Mid-20s then? No. Yeah. Yeah, early to mid-20s. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, to spend your whole life, you know, hunting and fishing, your dad probably had no idea how that would translate when he started taking you at three and four years old, did he? No, he didn't. And then, you know, he was still alive when, when I did get into the outdoor industry immediately. And, and, uh, he never told me, but, but I know some of his old time friends, they said, man, your dad's proud of you for, I, I bet so. Because, uh, yeah, he was. And that made me, my, my father wasn't one to give a lot of praise. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whether you deserve it or not, he'd That's rather right. yell at you than praise you. <laughs> but, but he was a good man. He was definitely a good man. And, hey, I, I thank him for all of this. Him, my Uncle Walt, I mean, my cousin Butch. I mean, we just hunted and, hunted and fished our whole lives together. And then when my father retired, he never trapped. But when he retired, he got into trapping. And I remember walking into camp and, and – There'd be furs hanging all over the place in the camp. I said, if I did something like that, you'd kill me. <laughs> he had all the newspapers under him, drying them off. And he said, yeah, well, things have changed, he said. <laughs> but, but then he'd rather trap than, uh, than hunt man, or fish. He loved trapping. Now, where did you grow up, Ernie? Niagara Falls, New York. Is that how far are you from there to this day? How, how far have you moved away from? I'm I'm like eight miles out of Niagara Falls now. Wait, it's called Lewiston, Lewiston, Youngstown, New York. I'm okay. Like I'm only two miles from the boat launch in the Lower Niagara River. You know, a lot of people here in New York probably that haven't been up there, exposed to the outdoors there. It's there's a lot of hunting and fishing opportunity in the state of New York. It's it, the whole state's not like New York City. It's incredible. I've never been to New York City. Is that I right? live in the state. <laughs> I, I don't want to go either. Oh, you know, I one wanted to time, ask you that, and I figured you probably one had time, not. One time I went to New York City, I think I was seven or eight years old, and we had people coming in from Italy getting off the boat. We had to go pick them up. Well, of course, we had a, a, a 60 whatever, a 59 Chevy station wagon. And I had to ride with them out there. And then, you know, you pick these two or three people up off the boat and they can't speak English. And we, it was a heck of a ride all the way home. <laughs> I mean, because I'm 450 miles out of New York City, right on the Canadian border I live. Okay. Now, what got you started then from the time you heard those turkeys gobbling to, was Quaker Boy, was that your first uh, job in the hunting industry? And how did that yeah. get, how did that get started for you? 
Well, what what happened was let me, let me quickly tell you what happened that morning. So so that was what my buddy Mike Martin and he knew what was going on and these turkeys were gobbling. He put me off about about 60, 70 yards off the one side of him. He said, you sit right here, because a lot of times if they come in, they circle around. He was lying to me. <laughs> and anyway, the turkeys come right down the hill right to him, and he killed one. And but once, and then you could only hunt till 10 o'clock in the morning back then. I went the following Saturday and went up there, and one of them turkeys was still up there. He was gobbling again. He walked right down the hill to me, and I killed him, and that sealed the deal. But when we were kids, you know, when, when we would go on vacation somewhere, and normally it was camping somewhere, and we would always stop at the throughway stops, and they had them machines. They always had them bird calls in there. You know, the little little mini diaphragm mouth calls. And, you know, so, you know, my mother and father, they'd get me one of them, and I'd drive them nuts the, whole, the rest of the way down the road. But I end up pretty decent on that thing. So then when I see they're making turkey calls the same way, now that I'm into it, you know, that that's what I did. But I, I started then, it was with a Penn Woods call, and doing pretty well on it. Then I wrote a bit of a magazine article. It was in a New York Sportsman. And where my article started, on the next page, there was an ad for a turkey calling contest. I'd never heard of it. And it was in Owego, New York. I think it was in... It was 77 or 78. So uh, my girlfriend then, we weren't married. And me, I said, let's go over there for the weekend. I got to see what's going on. And it's a couple <laughs> hundred miles from here. But we went to it, and, and I got in the amateur contest. But when I walked in the door, the first person I bump into is Ben Lee. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know Ben Lee from Adam. But there's Ben Lee, then I go a little more. There's Kelly Cooper, Dick Kirby. The Rome brothers. They're, I mean, they're all there. Uh, you know, and I didn't realize at the time just who these people were. But, I mean, anybody that knew Dick Kirby, he was very outgoing. And he kind of took me under his wing right there. And he wanted me to try his calls. And I says, you know, that was like the first biggest deal that he really set up to sell them. And uh, so he gave me a couple of his calls, and I ran it pretty good, except there was one call I couldn't do on it at the time. And uh, he said, you need to get in that amateur contest. So I did, and I finished second. That started it right there. I built a fire under me. And then I find out that he only lives 45 minutes from me. I had no idea. And from there on, that's what I used to – then I used to go with him on the weekends uh, to contest to hell, and, and we would have the calls in his trunk. And after the contest, it opened a trunk and we'd sell his calls. So he'd pay for the food and the gas. I'd pay my entrance fee and I'd, I'd help him sell the calls. So that's where that started. And I, that was 77, I believe, when I started helping him. And uh, from there on, then it just got to, I was a welder then. And it just went on and on, and, and finally, so he said, you need to come to work here. And I, I took a, a pretty good hit on a pay cut, but I says, I'm going to take a chance. I wasn't known for taking chances like that, <laughs> but I took it, and I'm darn glad I did right now. Now, when's the last time you put a welding mask on and welded? Two weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy needed some fenders welded on his trailer, and I did it for him. 
No, now, how long, how long you, the only problem I got is I can't see anymore. <laughs> how long did you did you work for Quaker Boy? Well, I started in '77, and I retired this July. It'll be four years, but you really can't say I'm 100 percent retired because I'll still work a show or two for them. Like I'm going to Springfield uh, for that big extravaganza they're having out there at the Bass Pro Shops. I'll be there all five days. Um, but I worked where I was actually on the payroll full-time. I think it was 32 or 33 years. That's a heck of a good run. Oh, yeah. That was, I'm, you know, of course, you're, you're worried about when you retire and all that. I would have made more money welding, but I wouldn't have had near <laughs> as much fun. Yep, no, I wouldn't <laughs> think so. I mean, my my, I, I did for a living what people go on vacation to do. That's right. <laughs> did it ever become a job for you, Ernie? I'm sorry. Did it ever become a like a real job for you, or did? Oh yeah, especially the stuff you got to do in the office because I'm yeah. not a real good office guy. But I did do it, and I did get it done. And and I was the guy that they used to call me the road warrior. I wanted on the road, talking to the people, working with the people. I did seminars all over the country, uh, everything. And that, that's what I really liked to do. But, you know, the, the office work was part of it. You just, you got to bite down and do it. That's yeah. it. Didn't ever diminish your love for being out in the woods and the outdoors, I don't guess, did it? No. Now, when, when did you start uh, guiding for fishing? That was... Uh, 35 years ago, 34 years ago, that was. Yeah, I think it was like an 86 or something like that. Uh, it was the late 80s, you know, from mid to late 80s. I started, uh, I started, you know, my charter business, and that goes good, too, and my son does it, too, now. Well, my son's a union laborer, but he's laid off like half the year. And he's got chances to go to other jobs, but he just, he, he fishes and he runs duck hunts all winter. Actually, he's fishing three days in a row right now. Now, the steelhead fishing at this time, I'm too old for that stuff. <laughs> too cold. I, I love steelhead fishing, but it's pretty nippy out there. And uh, I just soon do something else, like build wing bones. <laughs> <laughs> now, how, you're... You're building the wing bone calls. Now, do you sell them when when you're with Quaker Boy guys, or you just sell that on your own? No, I only I do 12 a year that I sell. That's it. And, oh, in case, unless somebody wants a personal one to them or that, because I always got a few spares. And, no, I just, I blasted one. The other couple of weeks ago, I blasted it on Facebook, and I had two years worth because COVID almost killed me back in, what was it, 19? No, it was in 20. The week before Christmas, I was in a hospital. Nobody expected me to make it out, including me. But I made it, but I didn't build, uh, I didn't do bones for that year. So I did two dozen here a few weeks ago, and I put it on my Facebook page, and I sold 24 in 24 hours. So that was pretty good. Now, you, you were in the hospital for COVID? Yes. Worst case scenario, you had it, huh? I had it. I had it where nobody expected me to get out of the hospital. Started me on that health plan I got on, too. You get some time to think in there. So it's about time you got something changed here. Yeah. And uh, 
Well, they gave me the Trump drug, and that's what saved my life. That and God, and my doctor told me that. When I went to his office after I I, I just went and got a hotel room to quarantine for a while. I had to quarantine for a week after I got out. When I went to my doctor visit, my doctor looked at me and said, Ernie, he said, you're one tough. I can't say the rest of what he said. <laughs> but that's what he said. He said, bad as you had. I had double COVID pneumonia. He said, bad as you had, it would kill anybody else. He said, <laughs> but hey, I got lucky and I beat it. Now, did you know that in that while you were in there, Ernie, how bad you were? That did you feel like you were close to dying while you were in there? I knew I was. I knew I was bad. I could not breathe at all. I could, and I was deer hunting in Georgia when it, you know, it was real bad down there. But I'm with my kid and one of his buddies, and and I didn't want to. I didn't want to ruin the hunt. Yeah. <laughs> so then when I got home, I called my doctor and he said, go to the drugstore and get an oxygen meter. And he said, if it's below 90, get to the emergency room. So I had my kid read it. He was driving. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think it was 74 mm. the one time. And it, I think it was 54 one time, unless he read it wrong. But I remember he said something about 74 and 54. But the people in him, the, the doctors in the hospital told me, he said, if I'd have waited one more day, I'd have never made it in there. But that's what I do with everything. I take everything to the mats. Now, did you, <laughs> you know, and that's what dads do. That's what men's, men do. That's what hunters do. Got to get through the hunt first. Sometimes our, some of our best traits can be our worst traits from a health standpoint. I had a guy one year, we were hunting, we were deer hunting in Kansas. And I, I said, what are you doing? Let's go. I don't feel good. I said, you what? You don't feel good. We're in Kansas. <laughs> you crazy? You cr I said, I'm going to have to, before I don't get in a tree stand, I will have to be dead. <laughs> Dang, I, I don't, I, there ain't no way I'm not getting in a tree stand in Kansas. Not happening. Now, did, did you have to drive, you drove back from Georgia to New York to get to your doctor? So that's a, was that a 20 something hour trip? Is it? No, no, for it's uh, 13. We're driving straight, just stop for fuel, 13 hours. Had to be a rough ride back when you can't can't breathe. Heck, it was a rough ride on the way down. I couldn't breathe when we left. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ernie, I was going to try to ask you, and, and Shed and I both going to try to ask you, some since turkey season is coming up, try to ask you some stuff around turkey, but you're not – just a turkey hunter, you enjoy the deer hunting and the fishing, as Shed mentioned. But uh, with turkey season coming up, tell us kind of what you do as far as locating turkeys. As far as do you roost them? Do you locator calls both? How do? What's your morning start out like? Well, the well, the, oh, the morning, the morning. You know, anymore, I. It's changed so much over the last almost fifty years, forty some years, for me that I don't. I personally, I don't owl hoot or anything in the morning. I just assume let them go. If I'm hunting them that one now, if I'm locating before the season uh, or just trying to find new spots to hunt and find where birds are roosting, of course, I'm going to make some noise to try to get them to gobble, whether it's an owl hoot or uh, my favorite one anymore is a coyote owl. I mean, they all gobble the coyote owls a lot of times. But uh, when I'm in there actually hunting them, I let them go on their own. I really don't owl them or, or do anything like that. Now, I will in the evening when I'm on my way out, if I'm in a state I can hunt all day, or if I'm 
is a state that can only hunt the mornings when I'm locating at night. And I, and I will blow a coyote holler, and if I have to, I'll take a tube call and gobble right after that, too. You know, because, of course, I want to know where they are if I'm going to be hunting in the morning again. But uh, when I'm hunting them, I'd rather have them go on their own and slip in the best I can and just try to get, you know, try to get a good position on them and, and uh, not bother them with any other kind of calls. How close do you try to get I, in, Ernie? It depends, uh, you know, where I'm at. Uh, you know, if I'm on a ridge in a wide open hardwoods and there's no leaves on the trees yet, of course, you're not going to get real close. You know, a couple hundred yards maybe. But you get some foliage on and, or, or like down south, uh, you know, where there is a lot of foliage or palmettos or whatever you could sneak through to get to them. Yeah, I'll get as close as I can. I try to get under 100 yards then. Something to make it a lot easier for them to get to me. I, I learned hunting with Ernie. The first thing in the morning he got to do is go to the bathroom. Because <laughs> one morning he thought we were in the bathroom, or it was either me or Tommy was in the bathroom, and he sat on the side of the bed for 45 minutes because the light was on and the door was closed, <laughs> and we were both still in bed, and then we got chewed out and we come out of it. <laughs> we'll be closing that bathroom door if you're not in there. That's right. <laughs> but we about killed him one morning. <laughs> One thing about turkey hunting is, you know, I'm all right to be an hour early, but I don't want to be a minute late. <laughs> now, Ernie, when you get one located in the morning, what uh, what's your process there? How, how, Calling-wise, what do you do? How, how much do you do it? I'm going to get in, and, you know, and like has been said for many years, I want to get his temperature, see what kind of a mood he's in, see if he's got any girlfriends with him or any other gobblers with him, try to feel him out. But if he's just up in a tree, just pounding and pounding and pounding, you know, then I'm just, I'm going to do enough to let him know where I'm at. And of course, I'm going to start with a little bit of low yelps uh, because I want to make sure, but, but, but I want to make sure I get his attention. And normally when he's in a roost, if he gobbles at me one time and I know he gobbled at me, like he cut me off or whatever, and it wasn't just in the rhythm he was doing, then I know he knows where I was at. Then I'm pretty much done calling at him unless time gets crazy where I think he should have been out of the tree. Uh, but, you know, of course, when he comes out of the tree, it's a whole different sound. So uh, pretty much you know when they're on the ground then. But I don't like to call to him a lot in a tree. And, uh, I mean, that's how we did it when I was younger. And, and I just, that's the way I still do it. So, I mean, if I want to kill a turkey, you know, if I'm there to listen to him gobble, yeah, I'll sit there and pound, or if I'm not real worried about killing him, I'll make him gobble because that's the most, the most exciting sound that there is in that spring woods. Yeah. How often do you, do you call typically? Ernie, is it, I guess, varies on the situation and what he's doing? Yeah, it varies on a turkey. If the turkey's gobbling back at me like every call, uh, or every other call, I'm I'm gonna call. As far as timing it out, it's hard to say, but I'm gonna call at him often because he likes it and he likes hearing it. As long as he's getting closer, if I think he's coming, if I don't think he's coming or he's hung up, I'm gonna back off on the call. Just gonna call once in a while. I mean, there's been turkeys I I call that every twenty or thirty minutes. One I remember uh, distinctly. I timed it myself, and I waited 45 minutes before I called that. 
but he was still there and he ended up coming in. He didn't gobble anymore, but he did come right to the call after 45 minutes. I made one more. I remember I ran a box call at him and he ended up sneaking right in, just walking, looking for me, sneaking right into me. So they remember, you know, Ben Lee used to say, you could, you could call it a turkey. If he gobbles at you one time and you were inside a tree and there was a knot hole in it, they said, you didn't have to call again. He'd walk up to that tree and stick his head in that hole looking for you. I mean, they know where it came from. Just like a deer when you're grunting at a deer. They know where that grunt call came from. Once you get them to start coming, you really don't have to grunt anymore. They know right where it came from. For some, they have that that gift or whatever it would be that uh, to, to pinpoint that sound that good. And I'm sure that's got something to do with how they stay alive, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But me, if I hear a turkey gobble, I'm going, God, was he in front of me or behind me? <laughs> you know, a lot of times when they surprise you. So if he go if he goes silent on you, you don't get impatient. You 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 wait for just like you did there for forty five minutes. You're willing to wait and wait out and kind of see what transpires during the morning. I have probably at times too much patience. Uh, of course, when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of patience. If they didn't gobble and I I gave them a little bit of time and they didn't show up or I didn't hear them anymore, I was going to look for the next one. Now I've got a lot more in the last 10, 15 years, you know, of course I'm older and, uh, uh, I don't know about wiser, but I am older <laughs> and, and I will, I will wait them out. I'll wait them out. I mean, the Turkey lives there. Where's he going to, you know, you, you start to reason things out. Where's he going to go? I remember I was guiding this guy behind my camp one day, Turkey's gobbling up on the ridge and, 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 I was in shape then. This guy was not in shape. And I saw a turkey's goblin back then. We used to run at him. <laughs> so I'm running up the hill. Then finally, after it gets all said and done, I remember this was, heck, a long time ago, he lost his $250 pair of glasses and this and that. I mean, there's no way he could have killed a turkey. He couldn't even <laughs> breathe by the time we got up there. And after it got all said and done, he said to me, he said, Ernie, he said, why do why do we have to run up there when we hear the goblin? I said I says I don't know to tell you the truth. It's just something that that I do. Turkey's goblin. I want to get to him as quick as possible. And that, he said, Yeah, but he lives there. Where's he? He ain't going anywhere. I said, You know what? I got to thinking about that after a while. And I said, You know, he's right. Of course, I wouldn't run in tight to him, but I'd run up to get on their level or whatever, yeah. and then ease into him. But I don't know. Then again, every situation is different. But, yeah, we used to run. It's just like when we used to kill them, everybody stood up and ran to the turkey. Heck, mm-hmm. I haven't done that, and I couldn't remember one. Why should I do that? I'm sitting there with that gun <laughs> on my hand. If he stands up, I'm going to give him another one. <laughs> when we used to turkey hunt living in Ohio, guys would always say you couldn't call them downhill. You had to get up on top, be above them. You live in New York. All the hills and stuff you climb, you think there's anything to that? No, I think that they'll come easier uphill, but no, I've called plenty of them downhill. I've called plenty of them across roads, through fences, over rivers, over lakes. If you got the right turkey and he's interested in what you're doing, and he don't have any girlfriends, right? a lot of times the hens will come across all that stuff. Now, 
preferences, you don't want to set up with anything like that in between you. You want to be above them or on the same level if you can. But sometimes the situation, you just can't do it. So what are you going to do, leave? I'm not leaving. I'm going to try and call them down the hill. And there's been plenty of times when they have come down a hill or across a road or two roads or three fences or what have you. So, I mean, there, there's no, that's one of the other beauties of it. There's no 100% set rule to it either. Now, Ernie, if you know that, that one's way out of range, he's not coming closer or he's moving away from you, do you stay where you're at or then do you go ahead and make a move? No, I'm, then I'm moving. If, if I know, if he's hanging in the same place, I might try to reposition. But he, if he's going away from me, I, if that's the only option I have as far as a turkey goblin, then I'll try to circle around and get around the other side of him. I remember years back, we, we'd have turkeys that would not come to a call. I don't care what you did. As soon as you started calling, they went, we used to call it 180. They 180 you. They're going 180 degrees from you every time. And we got smart, and, you know, we would send one guy 180 degrees all the way around the backside of him, and one guy, you know, just keeps him gobbling, and he just walks right. If the guy's set up right, he just walks right over him. I mean, but it depends. I mean, some guys say they won't kill a turkey unless they call it in. Well, I will. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I'm there. I'm there to hunt. I'm hunting. I'm there. People used to say, too, that, uh, you know, well, you, you shouldn't shoot them if. Uh, I said, uh, guys that I guided many times, I used to ask them before we'd leave the lodge or the camp or whatever we were going. I used to ask them, do you want to go turkey calling or do you want to go turkey hunting? <laughs> I said, it's up to you. You want to go turkey calling? We will. You want to go turkey hunting? We have a lot better chance of killing them. So. <laughs> now, how about your decoy setup, Ernie? What's your, what's your favorite setup? And, I, I, again, I guess that probably is dependent upon kind of where you are in the cycle of the breeding season or the periods of the season. I put decoys up wherever I'm at to start. The first turkey, the first gobbler that spooks off the decoys, they're done for four or five days anyway. And uh, But when I do put decoys out, I, put, I always put a hen and a jake out. Now, there are times later in the season where I'll just stick a hen out. But most of the time, it, it's a hen and a jake. And, of course, you always put the jake where you want to kill a turkey because that's where he's coming. You know, rarely they'll go to the hen, but... but 99.9 percent .9 of the time they're going to come to the jake and uh that's you know you just set that and i don't set them real close together i spread them out pretty big time and uh if i they'll walk right by the hen to get to the jake so of course that's where it, uh i keep the jake maybe 20 yards and they come into that jake and it's pretty much history <laughs> how, how much distance do you put between the hen and that jake Probably 20, 30 yards, you know, depending on where I'm at and what the situation is. Or I may stick her, you know, up if I'm hunting a field or a food plot or something, I may stick her up on a rise where she could be seen a little bit more or at least draw some attention to it. And then, you know, once the, tur once the gobbler gets, as soon as he sees the head, I don't care what it is, he's 
if he's coming, he's going to the Jake. But if you can put that hand to draw some attention out there, you can put her, you can even put her out of gun range. You know, like I say, 99.9% of the time, he's going to walk right past her and come to your Jake. You know, Ernie, you mentioned your, your wing bones, and what, what kind of time goes into that to, to, to get those made? You know, I get asked that all the time. I wish I, wish I knew. Hours. There's, I, now, I bet. I'm not artistic at all. And some of the wing bones that I know these guys make, and they're friends of mine, they're absolutely incredible. The artwork on them, the wraps on them, the but the only thing I said, I have no, I can't even hardly write my name, but I put these wing bones together and I wrap them and I'm very happy. They've come a long way. I could tell you that. But, uh, uh, that's all I say about my wing bones is they come from the heart. They're a lot of work, but it gives me something to do in the winter. I love doing it and I have a good time. And, and the people, uh, I make sure they sound good before I send them out. And, uh, you know, and then a lot of time, what I used to do was the first turkey that somebody killed with me, I I gave him a wing bone. Well, I probably five eight years ago or so, I quit doing that <laughs> because I, I I don't know why, but it just got to be kind of a pain. So I just quit doing that. And but there was plenty of people that uh, that do even have that wing bone, and they were my wing bones. Now are still pretty crude. But at least they got a little color to them, and I, I can write my name a little better now. <laughs> <laughs> and those are, th is it three bones that you that go together? Yeah, it's the, the three main bones of a turkey's wing. You know, you remove the wing right at the ball joint, then you separate the bones. Now, two of them, two of them hang underneath. You know, you, of course, the, you know the big one that comes out of the uh, out of the shoulder. Uh, then, then you have two smaller, a medium-sized bone. And then a little skinny bone, which is what you use for the mouthpiece, uh, that has the uh, the other, you know, the the remaining feathers. So it kind of flips out with uh, actually three joints: the shoulder joint, and then there's two joints on the on the middle bone. So you got three different size bones. And uh, I was always curious to where. I mean, I've seen wing bones like at the at the at the Turkey Federation in the museum there. I mean, they're over 400 years old, you know, that they picked up that Indians had made and that. And I always figured, how did they think of using these things yeah. for a yelper? Mm -hmm. How would they think, of, you know, the only thing I'm thinking is maybe they made pipes out of them or something, peace pipes or whatever pipes, and they were sitting around a fire you know, token on the pipe, and all of a sudden it yelped like a turkey. And he goes, "Man, that sounds like a turkey." I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe how they came up with that. But they work well, and you know, most of the people don't use the ones they get from me. Some of them do, but uh, they're good, especially the long distance. Or you need to throw something different at that turkey. Uh, you know, he gobbled at this and that. Now you haven't heard him, so throw another one at him. Because that happens a lot, too, where where you're out there and, and, and they'll say, well, yeah, turkey's gobbling at me and he's got hens with him. He's not gobbling at the hens. But yeah, he knows them hens. They're with him. He knows their voices. When you're yelping, that's a, that's a new girl on the block. He wants, to, he wants to talk to you to get you over to him. 
So he's all excited because he's hearing a hand that he hasn't heard before. Uh, that's my, I mean, you know, whatever I say, you can take with a grain of salt, but that's just my experience. But I believe they think that's a different hand that they've never heard. She's got a different voice. And, of course, they want to check her out. What type of calls do you keep on you, Ernie, during turkey season? I always got I, I got too many mouth calls on me. I carry too many of them. And I always have a slate because I'm a slate guy. I'm not a glass guy, aluminum guy. I mean, I can run them, but my preference is slate. I like when I'm running a slate, I want mellow ending stuff, killing stuff. The purr, I call it the purr of death. You purring real easy on that slate call. And, I mean, I call it the purr of death because most of the turkeys that die in front of me, especially if I'm calling for somebody else, that's the last thing they hear. And uh, uh, also a box call, especially a long box or just a loud high-pitched box. And But my number one and twos a lot of times are push-button call because – Push-button calls are just poison. They love them. And also a tube call. Because tube call I can get the most volume out of, and I can also gobble to, you know, to create a little bit more attention. So. Now you just kind of start with which one's your favorite and then just see what's working? I play back and forth between yeah, I always start, like, in the morning when I'm first starting to work a bird, it's always, it's 99.9% uh, .9 of the time it's a slate call. That's, I like to run them. I, I run them, I don't want to say great, I run them well. I can tone them way down or I can put a little volume on them if I have to. But it's that early morning mellow stuff. But later in the day, if I'm not hearing anything, I, whatever's in my vest or my backpack, I lay out and I start at one end and just work through them and then I go back to the other end and work through them the other way. And a lot of times what happens, all of a sudden you hit that call and bam, one gobbles at you. But once that happens, then I stay with that call because he obviously liked that one. So that's the one I'll run. But what do I run? I The most I probably run, especially during, you know, after first light, I run diaphragm most of the time, mouth call. Yeah. With Quaker Boy, did you make any diaphragm calls? Nope. Nope, I've made maybe three diaphragm mouth calls in my life. I got a lot of friends in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I didn't have to make any a Quaker boy, but now all my buddies that are incredible callers nowadays, I mean, them guys are so good now, it's scary. But everyone I know and everyone I see, they all lay three, four, five, six mouth calls on me I, every time I see them. So I got, I bet you I got 100 mouth calls in the freezer right now. <laughs> And they're all from guys that have won everything. All the new guys. Not, they're not new anymore, but all the guys that, you know, from the level where I was at in the contest, you know, then there was another level. Then from them guys, that, and I figured we're about four generations past when I used to do it <laughs> right now. And, and they just keep getting better and better. And right now, if I go sit and listen to a contest or judge a contest, I mean, the hair on my arms stand up because them guys are so good now. Incredible. Is that what you do is store yours in the freezer? I do, yep. Uh, I long, leave them in the freezer. How long will a, will a diaphragm call last you if you do that? Forever. Is that right? Yeah, I've had, I've used them that are five, six, seven, eight years old. As long as you take care of them and stick them in there and 
you know, you should rinse them off. Yeah. Rinse them off. The only thing is, if you, when you freeze them, if you had a cold when you put it away, when you put that thing back <laughs> in your mouth, you're going to get another cold. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. So sterilizing <laughs> things the best you can. The best you can, yeah. You should rinse them off. I wouldn't use hot water, but I would at least rinse them off with some clear tap water. Now, does your hunting change during the day, Ernie, from what you do in the morning? For those states that you can hunt all day, but afternoon to evening? Or you, you... Yeah, I'm a, evening, evening, I'm a sitter. I like to sit. Uh, normally, you'll see turkeys during the day or driving around or whatever, and I try to get where that turkey was in the morning in that field or, or what have you, or even before the season, and I know there's turkeys in that area. You know, when, when we used to first hunt them, too, they used to say, yeah, you know, the turkeys, they got to have woods. They got, you know, they're woods birds. They're not woods birds. They're field birds. And way back when, we never hunted fields. Not when I first started hunting them. You had to get the woods. And the bigger, bigger, nastier, tougher hardwoods there were, oh, yeah, they got to be in here. <laughs> well, well, come to find out that, no. They don't have to be in there. They like them fields a lot better because I'm sure, you know, there's they're bugging out there and clover and alfalfa and whatever else they're eating. And plus, they, you know, they're, they're safer. They, they can yeah. get out in the field. They can see everything around them. They can hear what's going on. Uh, so they're, they're, I'm sure they feel much more secure out there, too. Now, with that being said, do you, you prefer the open area as far as your hunting versus being in the, the deeper part of the woods or, or not? I love killing. My favorite is to kill turkey in a That's or a southern swamp or something like that. That's my favorite right there. Because, I mean, especially if you got a, a hardwoods with hollows and he's coming up, up out of one of them hollows or whatever, I mean, them leaves are shaking when he's gobbling. <laughs> I mean, they'll blow you right out of there sometimes. And they there is no other sound that you'll, in my in my opinion, that you'll ever hear like that, especially a big one of them uh, uh, Midwest turkeys, them big 22, 25, 26 pound birds. I mean, they can put it out, and uh, the ground will shake almost sometimes. I feel like it can anyway. <laughs> now, what uh, what's your upcoming season look like? How many states were you hunting this year, Ernie? And what have you done typically over the course of time? Well. <laughs> Well, Masio kind of stymied me this year. <laughs> so uh, I was going to like five states, and I'm down to two, possibly three now, just because they asked me to be uh, in Texas from April 7th to the 27th. And you know what? I have a blast on that hunt. There's all different. We, we run a bunch of hunts there. A bunch of different people come in. And a lot of them I know from the industry, uh, you know, we have retailers come in and stuff. And a lot of the mossy old guys are there. And, and uh, it's just, it's, it's a constant turnover of hunters. And the one thing I really like, man, you talk about getting some wing bones. <laughs> there are definitely a bunch of wing bones available after them. Uh, so, uh, but this year, I like normally I do a, a youth hunt in Ohio. I do a youth hunt in Rhode Island. I hunt Kentucky. I hunt Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. Uh, but this year, it's just not it, it, because of the, the seasons in some of the states got screwed up this year too. They they're not opening their normal times. 
like uh, like Georgia pushed it back a week. Uh, the youth season in Ohio is a week earlier. So that, all my well-laid plans got kind of kinked up. And uh, so I, I thought about it for a couple of weeks. I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then I said, you know what? You, you got to make a decision. So I decided that I'm just, I'm going, uh, after I get, I get done with Springfield, Missouri, with the Bass Pro deal, I'm going to Texas, and I'm going to be there for three weeks. Now, when I come home, if I do have enough time, I will run to Georgia. But then our season opens, and I have a, a fishing media event, a five-day event, the first week of our uh, turkey season. I'll hunt the first day. I'll take my cousin out. But uh, but then five the next five days, I got to fish. Then I'll hunt the, the, the following three weeks. And if not all in New York, I'll find a, another state or two up here I can go to. Now, how does your deer passion compare to your turkey passion? I grew up a deer hunter. I mean, deer is in my blood. I made my living off turkeys mainly, a little bit off deer, but mainly off turkeys. But I, I'm so glad that, that gobblers gobble in the spring and deer are up the fall. But <laughs> I don't know what I'd do. Yeah. There's just something about a big set of horns drives me crazy. Turkeys, you don't know what they are until you got them flopping. Once you got them on the ground, then you pretty much know what you got. But deer, before you release that arrow or pull that trigger, you pretty much know what's in front of you. And it's, uh, I don't know, it just kills me. (laughs) To this day, I mean, hell, I'll shake shooting a doe. So, I'm fired up about deer. I'm fired up about turkeys, too. Like I say, I'm just so glad that 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 happens in the spring. And the other thing is, too, anymore, once I'm mediocre, then all of a sudden I hear that first gobble, then I'm 110% after it. As soon as I hear that first turkey gobble in the spring, I'm I'm ate up again. Now, where all will you hunt deer in a year's time? What states do you try to go typically? Now I hunt uh, I hunt New York, uh, Georgia. I usually hunt that late in Kansas. I mean, I used to hunt Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Illinois. I used to hunt all them states out there when I was working. But now I got to pay for all that stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't hunt so many of them. I've hunted Saskatchewan. I've, uh, yeah, I've been all over for deer. What, what's and, your favorite uh, deer state? My favorite deer states, it, it's Kansas. It, yeah, it's Kansas. I, uh, the, I used to see more deer in Illinois, and I used to see a lot of deer in Missouri. Iowa, when I first started hunting Iowa, the farmer gave me permission to hunt. He had like 140 acres or whatever in southern Iowa. And I remember he, he told the first time he let me go in there and hunt, I used to be able to hunt Missouri and, and uh, uh, Iowa from the same camp. We, I belonged to a, a, a club in uh, Missouri. And the farmer says, yeah, you know, but me and my wife, we like to see the deer. And he says, we don't mind if you kill one or two, but, but you know, but, but we really do like to watch them. I said, yeah, okay, you know. But I didn't kill one the first year, but I did the uh, – yeah, I did. This. I didn't kill one the first year, but I did the second year, biggest buck I'd ever seen about. 
And then about four or five years later, I go down there. He said, Ern. he said, you kill every one of them things you see. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because there was times when I first hunted, I go two or three days, I wouldn't see a deer. Then, you know how deer go, they just blew up. And that, they were eating that farm, poor farmer out of, out of, you know, they were just eating them out of house and all. He said, you, he said, as far as I'm concerned, you can kill every one of them, he said. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, of course. Shed, you got, uh, do you want to ask? Yeah, if, what is your favorite, when, when you work for Quaker Boy, what was the favorite call that uh, they were making back in that you used? Oh, the one that I used? Yeah. You know, through the development of the year, my number one call was an old Turk. You know what an old Turk is? Mm. They don't make it anymore. It was a, it was eleven or twelve thousand single read with notches out of each corner. That's what I I used to blow that call in the contest. That's what I used to hunt with. I blow it. You need a lot of air to blow it, but yeah, I mean, I used to get that thing cranking. And uh, then I went on to, uh, and one of the reasons I didn't do it, because, you know, me and Buskey, of course, you know, we were joined at the hip back then. And and he he used to run the pro triple, then he'd, he'd bite he'd bite the top reed corner out of it. And, but that way, and he, of course, we all know how good he was. I mean, he was like the Tiger Woods of freaking turkey calling for how many years. <laughs> And, uh, and, and I, I wouldn't use his call because that was his call. I had my call. He come up with that call. He started it. And I kept telling him, don't be showing these other guys that call. And he didn't for a while, but then finally, uh, finally he didn't Quaker boy put that out. Now that was the cutter or cutter magnum with a notch out of the corner. And I ran that for a while, but my favorite of all time was the old Turk. Cause that's the one I started with, with them. But then at the end, uh, I actually liked like jagged edge. When, when I'm calling to a turkey, I normally like a lot of rasp in it, and so I was I was end up running a jagged edge from them. But even now, they got some new cuts now that I'm on to. I wish I was still on an old turk, but you can't find them anymore. And then for a while, I went to the half reeds. The half reeds I like. I still like, but nobody really builds them. A couple people come close to it, but you know, it's a three quarter or a half read. But even in that, I used to like that in that single, uh, but with the half read, it'd be like six thousand, five or six thousand read. Now, is Butsky the best you've heard? Call at a time, at a time, he was, yeah. But, uh, like I say, from one we did, and he's still incredible. I mean, he's as good as he ever was. But as evolution, come on, uh, you know, these guys that are running now, um, I'd like to see what Paul could do in a contest right now. You know, I'd, I'd like to, that would be, a, that would be an interesting thing. The guys now are just so real. It's just scary how real they are. Uh, but I, Paul, I'm sure would hold his own. No <laughs> doubt him, Walter Parrott, all the rest of the old guys, Chris Kirby. I mean, they all did very well me i was second (laughs) (laughs) 
Is, is there one hunt, deer or turkey, that kind of sticks out to you, Ernie, that uh, above some other ones? Well, one deer hunt is uh, I was in Missouri, and, you know, and, and uh, I was actually I was in an old man ladder stand, one of the old ones, and I had four or five points that all come down to a little junction box, all these fingers fed down. It was my favorite stand. You know, I, I had a... Uh, a farm, it was 1,700 acres, and it took me seven years to really learn that farm. And uh, this was my number one stand, and and uh, I killed some decent deer on that farm, but never, you know, like 140s. And, and, and of course, I remember the day I had to give my left arm to kill a 130. But um, – I was in a stand, it was, you know, the, the sun had just set behind me, and I was in the bottom, and and I happened, I looked up in the CRP up up uh, behind me, and there's uh, there's this buck walking through the CRP, he's probably 200, 250 yards, and he's got horns above his head, it looked like a halo, it was glowing. I said, oh my God. I grabbed my grunt call. And I grunted one time and he just, he stopped. It was one of them nights now, like the field was like gold because the sun had just went down behind a lip. I mean, you know, it was all daylight, but the sun had just went behind the hill behind me and the, the field was lit up and he, he didn't even look real. I hit that grunt call. He stopped dead and he turned right at me and he's there and I hit it again. He ran as fast as he could run. Here he comes. And I'm going, I mean, I never killed a buck that big. And he's coming and coming and coming. And there was a ditch about 50 yards from me. He stopped in that ditch and he ripped everything he could get his horns on the shreds. Everything was flying. Leaves flying, this and that. I didn't know what to do. So pretty soon he stopped dead still again. And I just hit that call real easy again. Here he comes. He come right to me. Then he come on the wrong side of the tree. I thought I, I thought there was no way I'm going to kill this deer. And he come around the front of the tree. And I remember when I hit full draw, I was shaking. He was 12 steps when I shot him. I couldn't get the pin on him. I couldn't. The pin was going over his whole body, above him, below him, to the left of him, behind him. And I finally I calmed down, calmed down, calmed down, because he's you know that I I. Uh, you know, I grunted to stop, you know, I, I made a noise to stop him, and, and he's looking right at me, and I'm trying, and I, I mean, I never shook so bad in my life, <laughs> but finally, I toned it down somewhere, I was only dancing all over maybe six inches, and uh, and I let the arrow go, and uh, I actually shot him in the brachial plexus, <laughs> I don't know if you know what that is, No. but the brachial, <laughs> brachial plexus is where, when I shoot a deer with a rifle, that's where I shoot them. It's right in the front part of the high in the front part of the shoulder. And that just that just breaks them right down. But you hit them in the brachial plexus, they're dead, they're down. They're, you don't even got to track them. But anyway, I hit him. His front legs went out from under him, so now he's on his chest. And he's pushing, and he gets back up, and he gets out to about 40 yards. And he's standing there, but I could, he ain't standing there good. I mean, the arrow penetrated good and everything. I knock another arrow. And heck, I can't shoot 40 yards. I'm terrible at 40 yards. But I let another one loose, and I nipped him in the front leg again. He fell down, and he rolled down his hill. And I, I could see him, his horns sticking up. 
He picked his head up three times, then it just laid still. You know, it took me ten minutes to get out of that stand. <laughs> you know how many times you know how many times I've been in our stands like that? <laughs> I couldn't even get the top rail unhooked. I don't know if you ever hunted out of one. You press the button and you swing it out. I ended up threw my bow on the ground. I ended up crawling over the top of the stand. And over the over the rail, over the shooting rail, you know, it was only a little one. I could shoot a bow over it. Over the bottom foot peg to get down or to get that deer. I mean, Dick was hunting across the road from me. And uh, when the farmer, I called the farmer, you know, I went there and got the deer. The deer was huge. And uh, I called the farmer. I didn't call the farmer. I had to go up on a road. I get the farmer. I kissed him. Dick come over there. I kissed Dick. I was kissing everybody. It was crazy. I mean, the, the, the deer, he had 14 and a half inch G2s. He had 27 and a half inch and 28 and a half inch main beams. I mean, I never seen an animal. This was years back. I never saw, I never saw a buck like that. I mean, so then I think this is the biggest buck I'm, I'm going to kill in my life. And he was 167. So then I went from there. I went to Kansas first morning. First morning, I'm up on a I'm up on a climber. I get I don't even have all my stuff up there. I look, I kill a 176. <laughs> I had a heck of a you week. Sound like Joby did this year. <laughs> oh, I had a heck of a week. I think they can do a number on you, can't they? Oh boy, but I I ain't never been that rattled in the woods in my life. Never, mm. never, and I'll never forget that. That is. He's not the biggest deer I killed, but I don't care about that. He is my favorite. Jed, you got any final words? I mean, I could talk with Ernie for hours. I know so many stories. and We can't talk of, about Uncle Ab Shed. Yeah, some <laughs> of them we can't talk about. Some of them we can talk about. Uh, well, ever since and, I have known Shed, he is he has mentioned your name, Ernie, and, and he always says, there's, he goes, Ernie knows everybody. Everybody knows Ernie. There's nobody that knows more about hunting and fishing and got better stories than Ernie Calandrella. He's told me that since I've known him. So it, it's good oh, to put all that thank together you. and listen to you tonight. Well, hey, this industry that I ended up in, and you guys know this, I mean, you're not going to find better people. And I mean, you make friends for life. Uh, good Lord. I mean, even, you know, when we, the first time we'd go to Pennsylvania for a calling contest, Dale Rome used to put up, put us up in his house. He didn't know us from Adam, but you know it was Dale, Robbie Rome, Terry Rome, Putt Rome. You know we're all there together. You know we're all competitors, but that's how good these people were, and these people are still like that. They're still some of my better or best friends. But the, all the older guys that you know, there's only a handful of us that actually made a living out of it. Uh, you know, some of them, you know, it just didn't work out for them, but I can imagine doing what I did at all. It really, to, for me to get in the outdoor industry, it started with a turkey calling contest. It started with killing a gobbler in the spring and then turkey calling contest. And that's, uh, that's what got me into the outdoor industry. And thank God it did. Cause I've had, I, I tell my kids, if anything ever happens to me or anything, of course, I want you to feel bad that I'm gone, <laughs> but. Hell, I've lived 10 lifetimes. I mean, I did stuff that uh, it got paid for what people do on vacation. I That's mean, right. You know, I I lived 10 lifetimes. I've got absolutely no complaints. And, you know, hunting is something that brings people together. 
And you know, when you're kissing grown men on the cheek or the lips, whatever it may be, you're either never going to see the, him again or you're going to be bonded together forever. <laughs> the one on the lips. Dick wouldn't let, Dick wouldn't let me kiss him on the lips. <laughs> After a big old buck, it don't make a guy any difference. You I know? didn't care. I was no. kissing everything. I was kissing trees. I was kissing everything. <laughs> now, now, Ernie, Joby is a, he's an accomplished musician. And Ernie <laughs> is a pile of karaoke. So you got to ask yeah, him a music better. question. Uh oh! All right, where are you talking? All right, Ernie. I'm, what? The, front, I'm the Frontier Lanes karaoke champion. <laughs> <laughs> New York Outdoorsman Hall of Fame and karaoke champion. <laughs> oh. Well, Ernie, what is it? She had to name you top three. You want his top three or just yep. his number one? What's your who? What's your top three of songs of all time, Ernie? If you had to pick them. Number one, because. It, it, me and Paul Butsky used to live on this song. When we see a sign, it say like Buffalo 400. You know, I mean, it was uh, Lay Me Down, Conway Twitty. Okay, yeah. There you go. My other favorite song, and I sing this one karaoke, is uh, In Color by Jamie, uh, Johnson. Jamie Johnson. Heck yeah. Yeah. Never, I love them songs. And then, you know, I like all Chris Stapleton now and all that, but uh, I like the old country. I like Waylon and uh, George Jones. I love him. Uh, I like all that old stuff. Well, that's I right. Like that's it. right up my alley. We, we'll have to get together at some point, Ernie. We'll have to hit some karaoke or break out a guitar or something. Yeah, yeah, we'll do a duet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only problem with me is I got to have the words in front of me because I can't remember nothing. And we have to we'll have to put them in big font too for both of us. I have uh, I now lay me down. I've sang that thing probably two million times, so I pretty much know all the words of that one. We used to have it on a Ben Lee gave Paul at Red Dodge, so all the contests and that we'd go on that Red Dodge. He had eight track in there. How that tape never got wore out to this day, I don't know. But we'd play it over and over and over. We just like to drive to it. That was that was a song we listened to. Well, old Conway, of course, accomplished, but he's kind of underrated. But he's one of the greatest voices and entertainers, really, of all time. I, he really is. Absolutely, absolutely. And a heck of a baseball player too. I don't know. I don't know people that. know that. Yeah, actually, I think he I ended did. up. He was part owner at one time of. Uh, I guess it would be the Nashville Sounds. I think they were AAA team. Still are for somebody. Oh, but he was, he was yeah, part owner then. Huh. And Charlie Pride was a, actually a, a professional baseball player. Wow. I didn't know that. feel as good about your musical background and knowledge of old country music than anything else, Ernie. But just remember, don't, don't be fooled. I cannot sing. I <laughs> think I can sing. Hey, that's irrelevant. That's ir singing. I ran karaoke night here at the club uh, last Saturday night. Yeah, I, I <laughs> people who... The first time I ran karaoke at this place, they said it ain't going to work. This is a gun club. I said, let's try it. I, I did my sixth one last Saturday night. They were here till 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> the DJ got, the, the bartender said, how long is this guy going to play? I said, he'll play till daylight. <laughs> anyway, it's a hoot. Well, Ernie, thank you again. Shed, uh, anything as we close again? No. Well, I'll talk I think to you. I just go on the rest of the night. I know too much. <laughs> uh, I'm going next door to have me a vodka. <laughs>
<laughs> well, enjoy, Ernie. Guys, hey, we'll talk All to you. Right. We'll talk to you both soon. I hope so. Uh, yes. All right. I had fun, guys. I hey. like rem reminiscing about the old times. Me too. We'll, we'll, we'll do her again. Sounds good. Hey, thanks a lot. We'll see you. All right, boy. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending time today with Shed Nine, our guest, Mr. Ernie Calandrelli of Quaker Boy Game Calls. Ernie has spent over 40 years working in the hunting industry and is one who's highly respected among those in the hunting, fishing, and outdoor worlds. When you've worked alongside and been friends with the likes of Ben Lee, Paul Butsky, Fred Zink, Preston Pittman, Joe Drake, Steve Stoltz, and Mark Drury, just to name a very few, it shows how much ground has been covered over the years by Ernie Calandrelli. Please assist Shed and I by liking and rating today's episode and by subscribing to the Potion Creek Podcast. We are not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we can reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms and with all your hunting and outdoor friends. Thank you again for listening, and as always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek.